I have a book on my bookshelf, and it is entitled 14,000 Quips and Quotes for Speakers, Writers, Editors, Preachers, and Teachers. It literally covers topics from A to Z. And I look at it often, I, I will tell you, I've not used a lot of the quips and quotes from it in the past. They just didn't seem to fit. But the other day I was sitting there thinking, how do I start my sermon? And I ended up going to this book and, and I looked up the topic for today, anger. And there were like three pages of two columns per page of quips and quotes about anger. I read through them and three of them stood out to me. Three of them really kind of helped me in my approach to this difficult topic today. And what made them stand out for me is they didn't leave me bummed out and sad. Because when you talk about anger, it can leave you bummed out and sad. The first one was, the world needs more warm hearts and fewer hot heads. Or try this one, forgiveness saves the expense of anger, the high cost of hatred, and the waste of energy. Or this one, patience strengthens the spirit, sweetens the temper, stifles anger, subdues pride, and bridles the tongue. Those last two in particular, but all of them in one way or another, reflected the truths that we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you, or maybe you have an electronic version. Uh, and if someone in front of you doesn't have a Bible, grab one and hand it to them. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we are dealing with what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've already been through what we know as the Beatitudes. And we've talked about salt and light. And we've seen Jesus tell us he is the fulfillment of the law. And so as we enter the Sermon on the Mount again today, we need to be very aware of something. Because in this particular section that runs through most of the rest of Matthew 5, we're going to find Jesus making a statement usually reflecting back to the law in some respect, and then saying, but I say. And there are people that say, well, Jesus is giving us the opposite of the law, and that's not true at all. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. So when he makes a statement and then refers to, but I tell you, or, but I say, it's not that he's negating the law. What he's doing is he's showing us underneath to the true heart. Of the law. He's showing us that more than external realities are at hand here. Because the law wasn't just about external realities, it was about the heart that drove those external realities. So even if somebody kept the letter of the law, even if somebody kept all the nuances and the practices of the law, the extra things that were added to it by the Pharisees, even if they did that, but there was no change of heart, no change of the inner person, then they would be missing the point of the law. What I like about those statements I read just a few minutes ago is that they speak 
to that which is deeper than just counting to 10 so that I'm not outwardly angry. Jesus points to a command. He chooses a very obvious one. He chooses one that hardly anybody would disagree with or say, oh no, that's not right. We find it in chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Anybody sitting there in that crowd that day whether it was the four named disciples, Matthew and, and, and uh, or the four named disciples, Peter and his brother Andrew and, and James and John, or whether it was the, the others that had gathered around that had heard his teaching and wanted to hear more, or whether it was the crowds that were milling about, or, or the Pharisees that were standing there taking notes about this new teacher, any one of them would have said, true, I agree with that. None of us in here would disagree with the the command, you shall not murder. That is easy to be aware of. But then Jesus takes it to another level. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus speaks more deeply to what would bring a person to the point of wanting to actually commit the heinous act of murder. And if I were to summarize what Jesus is saying here, I think it would be this. Unresolved anger is destructive. It is anger that begins in the depth of the human heart Some texts, if you'll read in Matthew chapter 5, would read anger without cause. And it's interesting, the word that Matthew uses for anger here is a word that means doesn't mean just to fly off the handle. It's not a word that means, you know, you're you're hammering a nail in and you hit your thumb and you go, oh man, that hurt, and you're just it's 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 not that. It's not that kind of just boom, I got angry and then I'm not. It's it's a different word. It's a word that references a slow burning anger. It's an anger that's like a coal smoldering in one's heart and it's just always there and it's always hot and it's always in your soul. It's an anger that is set on vengeance, an anger that says, I will make somebody else pay. And that's the kind of anger that if not dealt with, if still there, could lead someone to that whole idea of murder. It's an anger, literally longing to see another person dead. I I often reflect when I'm here on a statement, it's, it's attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if he actually said it, but it was this. I have never killed a person, but I've read a lot of obituaries with glee. That's the kind of anger we're talking about. I'm not going to kill anybody, but I'm kind of glad they're not here anymore. That's the anger that we're talking about. 
And you know what? That kind of unresolved anger not only can do damage to another person, the reality is that kind of unresolved anger does damage to the person who's angry. Our bodies were not designed by God to live in a state of tension. And that kind of anger puts one in a constant state of tension. And it's an anger that can literally destroy the angry person in their own body. No wonder James chose to use this same word when he said, human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So how do we do that? How can we destroy another person without actually destroying them physically? Jesus points to a couple things. He says, I tell you, Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In other words, anybody who is so angry they want to see vengeance happen, they're subject to judgment. But then he goes on, and I find it interesting that he uses the idea of words. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that life and death are in the tongue. Our words are powerful. Our words can be used in great good power to encourage someone. I've told you before, if you think back, and you think back to a time when you were deeply encouraged by someone, someone said something that just kept moving you on, you can remember those words. You can remember the time where you heard those words. But at the same time, some of us have words that were said to us that were deeply damaging and that were harmful and hurtful, and we can remember those words too. Life and death are in the tongue. Jesus says, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. The word raka is an Aramaic term. Most likely when Jesus was speaking to the folks there in Galilee, uh, uh, this time called the Sermon on the Mount, he was using Aramaic, the dialect of the time. And the word raka is an Aramaic word. It's a word that's been described as an angry, contemptuous belittling of another person. Some people said it's kind of, if we would try to translate it, it might be you blockhead, uh, which you know, we go, well, that's Charlie Brown. That's no big deal. But it is. It, it, it speaks horribly toward another person. I would call it character assassination. I haven't killed anybody, but maybe I've destroyed their reputation. And Jesus says you're subject to the court. You're subject to judgment for that. He uses it, he goes and gives us a different illustration. He says, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, again, that word you fool, now that's a Greek word that Matthew uses and we get our word moron from it. You think about that for just a minute. You, we don't use that word. We don't use that word in common discussion. We don't use that word even in insults anymore. It's a word that we're like, whoa, we're backing away from that. You call someone moron, he says, you're danger of the fire of hell. In other words, you have violated the law that says thou shalt not kill because you killed their character. You killed their reputation. And Jesus holds that in high regard. He says, be careful because it's that kind of internal smoldering. I want to destroy you as a person even though I'll let you live. It's that kind that destroys others and destroys us. We decry the lack of civility in our culture, and we should. 
But we ought to be very careful in that same regard how we use our words. How we use our words, how we comment of those in any sphere that we do not care for. I was talking to someone the other day and they were telling me that in their church, in their children's ministry, they went, they've been going through the Beatitudes. And one of the children's ministry leaders was spouting off about something. I think it was about a certain entertainer who's gotten highlighted in NFL football games lately because she's a uh, fan of the team, the Kansas City Chiefs, my team. And uh, so she was spouting off about that. And her daughter said, Mom, are you being salt and light right now? From the lips of a child, right? How we use our words commenting on anyone in any sphere should not reflect anger, but it should reflect those principles of the Beatitudes. We should be people of meekness and humility. We should be people who reflect the character of our Heavenly Father, which is that of a peacemaker. We should reflect the character of the God we say we serve, which is He's a God, God is love. And, you know, we got to think about it. I mean, what I post on social media about people, maybe even in public office, with whom I disagree, reflects my character. And I'll say this, well, I have freedom of speech. You have freedom of speech in the Constitution of the United States of America. But when you come into faith with Jesus Christ, you give up your freedom of speech in the sense that our speech should be full of grace, seasoned with salt, and beneficial to all who listen. Spouting off about someone, even if you disagree with them, could start to lead you toward this kind of unresolved anger. The Apostle Paul will, will, will expand on this concept in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And a couple verses later, he points to that one example. Do not let, here it is, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only one is helpful for building up others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Ephesians 4.29. The emotion of anger is not the sin. It's what I do with my anger, how I think about, and then how I treat others, how I talk about them, how I talk to them. That's how I deal with my anger. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when I take God's right of vengeance from him, I step into a place I was never designed for. And I would furthermore say that if I find a way to get somebody else to do my vengeance, to take out vengeance on someone else, or if I see that person I have a problem with and I see someone else mistreating them and I step back and watch and say, hey, they're getting theirs, I believe I am still being held responsible before God. I cannot delegate my anger to someone else Jesus takes vengeful anger seriously, and you and I should too. But how does that play out? 
How does that play out as we live our lives? Most of us would not characterize ourselves as a smoldering cauldron of seething, bitter anger. We, we don't believe we're that. So Jesus gives us two scenarios in dealing with difficult situations. And they actually point out an overriding point. And it's simply this. Reconciliation is the antidote to angry reactions. Look what Jesus says. Therefore, okay, here's all this stuff he said. and Everybody's kind of, we're all kind of blown back by this like, whoa. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. I would say it this way, reconciliation is the initial responsibility of the offending party. Reconciliation is the initial responsibility of the offending party. And so Jesus deals with a situation that we would just simply call a time of worship. And he, and he paints a picture. Somebody comes to the altar and they're bringing their gift, whatever it is. Maybe it was a grain offering. Maybe it was a drink offering. Maybe it's bringing a lamb to the altar. They're coming to the altar. And as they come to the altar, and maybe they're standing in line, and there's other people in front of them, and they keep getting further, and they keep realizing, no, I, I, was, really, I was really wrong. I, I, I really didn't treat that friend of mine very well. I didn't treat my family well. And they're getting there. Jesus says, stop. Put that gift aside and go back and be reconciled to that person. Then come back and offer your gift. Now, Jesus, when he taught, oftentimes used extremes to make the point, to show how important the point was. The place... In the first century, when Jesus is talking, where you brought your gift to the altar was Jerusalem. Jesus is giving this talk, to the best of our knowledge, in Galilee. If Peter and James and John and Andrew were there with him, they're fishermen on the shores of Galilee in the city of Capernaum, and, or the village of Capernaum. And so Jesus is saying, in a sense, it's this important. If you make the three-day journey down to Jerusalem and you get to the temple and you go, wow, I really blew it. Then you put your gift down and you make the three-day journey back to Galilee and you make it right with that person and then you make the three-day journey back to Jerusalem and now you offer your gift. Now I realize that's hyperbole, but it's that important to Jesus. Think how significant it is. Jesus is literally saying, stop the formal act of worship and repair a human relationship. See, when I'm at odds with another person because I am the offending party, because I've offended them and I know that and I've broken that relationship, that break in that relationship gets in the way of my worship of God. Peter will say it this way in chapter 3 of Peter. He says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as a weaker vessel. Not weaker physically. Not, it, it's the idea that they, they feel things different than you do. So that 
Nothing will hinder your prayers. If my relationship with my closest human companion, my wife, is not what it should be, my relationship with God will not be what it should be. It is useless to go through the motions of worshiping God if I'm treating another one of his image bearers wrongly. I will worship God more freely, more powerfully, more meaningfully when I go to the one I've offended and I name the offense. None of this, if I've done anything to hurt you, no, you name it. The other day I said this and I saw that it hurt you and I didn't do anything about it and I want to say I'm sorry. Or the other day I held on to this and I know that it's your precious thing. Whatever it is, you name the offense. Name it. And then ask their forgiveness. Offer no excuses, no caveats, no generalities. You see, that is the complete opposite of a smoldering, festering, seething, bubbling anger that just begins to eat at your gut. It serves to put them out of the... And and it can serve them because maybe they had a smoldering anger toward you and you're coming through reconciliation and you're putting out the fire for both of you. And remember this. I am not responsible for their reaction to my confession. They may not be ready to forgive and make it all hearts and flowers. They may have to go through a process. I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible for God for my heart, and for letting him work in them. Jesus gives a second scenario. What about out there in the broader culture? And I would say the second, the second thing that he says, well, let me read it first. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out till you've paid the last penny. Let me give you a summary, and then we'll break it down. Reconciliation seeks to heal adversarial relationships. Reconciliation seeks to heal adversarial relationships. Newsflash, not everybody is your friend. Not everybody likes you. Not everybody wants to be your friend. And so sometimes we have these adversarial relationships. Now, based on what's said here, this second scenario deals with something that was happening. It happened all the way up into the 19th century here in the United States, the idea of debtor's prison. The idea of if you owe a debt and you can't pay it, we throw you in jail, which it makes no sense How can I pay the debt if I can't work to pay the debt? It wasn't necessarily a a practice in Israel among the Jews, but they were aware of it because it was a practice in the first century. And Jesus says, this isn't sort of a legal strategy. It's not a financial strategy. It's a relationship strategy. You see, the point is, before an adversarial relationship gets out of hand, uh, before it gets to the place where there is no healing, be the peacemaker. That's what we're called to be. What? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. You be the peacemaker. 
you strive to make the peace. In this case, it was settling a debt. And it was the idea of go to the person you owe money to and make arrangements to pay them before it gets out of hand. You know, isn't that true with anything? If you owe a debt uh, and you communicate to your debtor, you communicate. I mean, financial people will tell you this all the way. The people that don't communicate, the people that just stop paying, are the people that get in trouble. But the people that reach out and communicate and say, I'm in problem, I'm, in a, I'm, I'm just up to my ears in, in debt, and, and I want to pay this off. Can we work out an arrangement that I could pay this amount here or there? Oftentimes, they will work with you because they don't want to lose the money. And so work it out. Settle the debt. Make arrangements before it gets to the point that one is taken to court. The broader principle here is work to be peacemakers and reconcilers in those relationships that are hard before they get out of control. Sometimes the way to do that is you put a little space between you and the adversary, if you can. Sometimes you just be aware of what they might be going through. If you see them going through a difficult time, maybe you step in and be of help to them. It's not easy. In fact, it's very hard. But when we do to the best of our ability to be peacemakers, to be initiating reconcilers, even to those who we don't call a friend, even to those who could be in an adversarial relationship with us, we save ourselves from falling into the trap of a smoldering anger and a quest for vengeance. I call that proactive reconciliation. When I go through these things, I like to look and see how different ones render. And let me just read what uh, the late Eugene Peterson, how he rendered these last verses in Matthew, uh, in, in this section, Matthew 5, 25 through 26. Say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. Now, I know that's interpretation and all, but it's the idea. Make the first move. Be proactive in reconciliation. So what do we do with all this? I want to leave you with just a few takeaway points this morning. And the first one is really simple. Always treat other people with dignity and respect. Always treat other people with dignity and respect. <laughs> I was listening to an interview recently, and the person being interviewed is a person who is very well known for being an atheist. And the person being interviewed began to talk about some of his own life philosophy. And like so many people, he's read, you know, you name it, Buddhism, everywhere else. And he said, and I read the teachings of Jesus. And he said, you know what I keep coming back to? Love your neighbors yourself. He said, man, if that is the way we all tried to live, just think, we would solve all of our problems. And this is a man who does not hold Jesus any more than just a good teacher, period. But he said, is that, if that's the way we live, treat other people with dignity and respect. 
And that includes how we speak about them and to them. Remember, our words are powerful enough to destroy another person. Use your words carefully. A second takeaway. Based on what Jesus said, work or strive to make reconciliation a top priority. You see, I need to be more concerned about who I may have offended than who's maybe offended me. And based on what Jesus said here, it is really useless to go through the motions of serving and worshiping God if I'm treating another one of his image bearers wrongly. How can I worship God of whom I'm created in his image? How can I worship God if I'm treating his image bearer incorrectly? And remember this, every human being on the planet bears the image of God regardless of race or ethnicity, regardless of their faith, regardless of anything, we're all, as human beings, image bearers, and we need to treat people with dignity and respect, and we need to make reconciliation a top priority. And I would say thirdly, take positive steps to learn to resolve anger. First and foremost, identify the source of the anger. You see, I believe anger is not a core emotion. It's a reaction. I believe anger is a reaction to fear. It's an a- anger can be a reaction to frustration. Anger can be a reaction to pain. Why am I angry? Why am I feeling this tension inside? Secondly, Ask God to help me to forgive those who've hurt me. And hear me out again and again and again. I will tell you, forgiveness does not mean it was okay. Forgiveness does not mean it didn't hurt. Forgiveness does not mean they didn't sin. And forgiveness does not mean you forget. Forgiveness means I release my right of vengeance to God. You hurt me. Yes, because of that hurt, I'm going to step back. But I am not coming after you. I am not going to destroy you. I'm going to turn it over to God. I will have to heal. I will have to work through that healing. But I am releasing you to God. I think it was Lewis Smead that says, forgiveness sets a prisoner free. And then I realized the prisoner was me. When I hold on to resentment, when I hold on to anger, I become the prisoner of it. Ask God to help me forgive. And coupled with that is this one. Trust God to exact his judgment in his time. If God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, I need to trust him to do that. Because I know this, whenever I thought I'd gotten back at someone, it really never really satisfied. And then a fourth positive step is do my part to quickly resolve issues with others. I had a phone call, made a phone call once to one of my youth leaders way back in the day. And we were talking and sometimes I say stuff without thinking. If my wife were here, you might hear an amen. And I made just a quip to my youth leader without thinking, and she said, Scott, that, that really hurt. And I brushed it off, and we finished the call. And I'm sitting there, and I went, 
I think it wasn't me. I think it was the Holy Spirit that went, Howington, you nut, call her back. And I did. I said, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. I was wrong in what I said. I was wrong, and I'm sorry it hurt you. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And you know what? She did and remained a youth leader for more years, more years, you know, but, but she, that's it. You don't wait. If you know it, you resolve it as quickly as you can. Remember this as we wrap this up this morning. The two greatest commands are simply this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. When you and I learn to manage anger God's way, we can find that we more effectively live in obedience to the core commands of God. And in that there is true freedom. And take it from one whose counselor described him, me, as like a cup full of hot coffee. And that hot coffee, Scott, represents your anger. And anytime there's a little something that happens, that anger flows over. And then it kind of gets back in there and you surround it with a cup of niceness, but you've never dealt with your anger. And it took me years to deal with it. God wants you and me to be people of peace, to be people of reconciliation. Because the world needs more warm hearts and fewer hot heads. And because forgiveness saves the expense of anger, the high cost of hatred, and the waste of energy. And patience strengthens the spirit, sweetens the temper, stifles anger, subdues pride, and bridles the tongue. May we strive to be people of peace and reconciliation. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminders we have. They're, they're not easy. These are not easy words to preach. They're not easy words to hear. But they're words that we need. They're words that we need to be aware of today. And I ask, dear Lord, that as we go into whatever we have this day, this week, that we will go as people of peace. That we will go as people who strive to use our words in ways that build others up, that benefit all who listen, that we will be people who reflect the character of God. And that whether others know you or don't know you, whether they know how to articulate it or don't know how to articulate it, they will know that there is something about us that is different. And maybe that will be that opportunity we have to share the change that Jesus has made in us. May we reflect you in Jesus' name. Amen.